0: Welcome back to part two of this double episode, Tom and Sean. If you haven't already listened to part one, Sean, then go back and have a listen to that now. Otherwise, keep listening for part two, Tom.
1: Now, Tom, so I think the area of work is you are in is described as narrative environment correct could you tell our listeners what on earth that means i can
2: it's not a very well known term um but essentially it means how how places and spaces tell stories or how you use spaces to tell stories so it's things like exhibition design installations all the way through to um urban spaces city plans how they all are sort of communicating to a person that is in that space and it's taught at central st martin's um which one of the the few places or the only place that that teaches it as a discipline and yeah where i'm now a tutor so i'd started tutoring two weeks ago
0: and so i think if i I remember correctly you worked in digital marketing before so (coughs) what led to that the selection of narrative, narrative, con- yeah. narrative design as your new career
2: yeah it was i originally after uni i fell into writing and editing and then got a job at london and partners which is the mayor of london's promotional agency. So it used to be called visit london producing content web content did some stuff around the olympics which was great so i got more into digital marketing and I'd been there five six years and a choice of two jobs came up one was more in editorial one was more in digital marketing and I couldn't decide so they said oh you know have some career advice have some career counselling so I had three or four sessions with this amazing career coach and the the answer to the the career coaching sessions was actually I didn't want either of those two jobs and that I had this sort of creative itch to scratch that I hadn't hadn't done so I Ended up going, choosing the digital marketing route, doing that for a year, but had this in the back of my mind and then saw this um, narrative environments master's at Central St. Martins, which I then did part time whilst working with the idea that I'd see how it went and then possibly go back to the job and apply some of the things I'd learnt. But... I, after graduating, didn't go back to digital marketing and then sort of said yes to all the opportunities that came with the course and then have sort of plotted what I do now, navigated through that as a result. So why does narrative environment matter? I think narrative environments are important because stories are very powerful and you can communicate an idea through a story more powerfully than any other medium. So you think about the power of books, the power of films... But then narrative environments take this to another level because the audience or the person who's interacting with it is physically in the space so they're not only understanding a story in a physical way by looking around them, but also they're inhabiting the story that they're being told. And if you think back to childhood and this sort of imagination of playing games where you're, oh, I'm an explorer, I'm walking around the sofa, it's the Andes. It's that same moment of being in a place and being in a fictional world that is very powerful. And fine, you can take it in different directions. It can be an exhibition or it can be a virtual reality world, but it's the same principle at play.
0: So so tell us about founding your own agency called Space Plus Plus.
2: Space Plus Plus. So my own company, it's a research research and design company for narrative environments. That was just a result of, after graduating, still not necessarily knowing more about what I wanted to do, but still not quite knowing, but having all these opportunities to all these different projects and then not really having a vehicle to to do that and i met some amazing people on the course who i continued to work with so I decided to found this company space plus plus in order to do these projects and then carry out this research and then i sort of used that as a framework to 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 do all the jobs that i So what does space plus plus mean? Yeah, it it took me so long to come up with that name. And even now I still find myself thinking, is that the best name? Anyway, that's (laughs) the one I've got. (laughs) Um, It just means thinking about space beyond four walls. So when you walk into a space or a place, it's always communicating something else.
1: So you've been involved in lots of projects, one of which was with the National Trust called Prejudice and Pride. That's right, yes. Tell us about
2: that. So that was a project in 2017, the National Trust launched a nationwide programme called Prejudice and Pride that was to mark the 50th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality. And at the time it was quite a radical, well, in hindsight it still was a radical step for the National Trust to take. It's sort of known as being a fairly conservative organisation, a very traditional, generally quite a sort of older profile of members, even though there are now over five million members. And what the programme did was to tell the untold stories of LGBTQ people in National Trust Properties. So, multiple locations took part across the country. And I was lucky enough to work on two specific projects one in Norfolk at Felbrig Hall, and one in Dorset at Kingston Lacey. So, what were the two projects about? Uh, the first one was at Felbrig Hall in. Norfolk, and that was looking at the life of Robert Wyndham Ketton Creamer. So that was quite a, quite a, a mouthful, but he was known as the last squire, he was the last member of the family to inhabit the house, and he donated the house to the National Trust on his death in nineteen sixty nine. And there's always been stories about his sexuality, but these had never been made explicit. Volunteers in the house talked about it, but not necessarily to the public, or not all of them talked about it to the public. People in the village and the town knew about it. So there were all these stories, but it was not official, and in some ways it was hidden. It was not told. So the project was to look at uh, Robert Wyndham County Creamer's life and to tell this story honestly for the first time. So phrases which had been in the house before, such as not one for the ladies or a bachelor, these sorts of, this sort of language that's... (laughs) Yeah, that implies something but doesn't say something honestly and openly. He got
3: on with his mum, didn't he? And yeah, and he said, got, yeah, exactly. Very close Her to mommy, his mum. Very right. close yeah, to yeah, his... Exactly. Eternal, very, what was yeah, Eternal, what it, like a bachelor. Yeah, eternal. Yeah, like,
2: not, not one for the ladies. Not one for the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> but to not say it honestly and openly is to imply that it's bad. And so we had to decide how we were going to tell this story and we ended up making a short film using some of Robert's... Poetry. So we wrote a, a script that told the truth of his life, but also engaged with this idea of how do you tell a story of someone's life? And we call it the unfinished portrait because there was a painting of Robert that was unfinished, a, a literal unfinished portrait, but then this idea that we were completing the story. And then luckily we managed to work with Stephen Fry, who lived in or grew up in very near Felbrick Hall and knew of the Squire, as he was known, the last Squire, and in fact had bought some of Robert's books at a sale at Felbrick Hall. So he had this this connection, but then that gave the film a sort of a profile that it otherwise wouldn't have had. And then in the process of the research, one of the most moving moments was finding a copy of the Wolfendom Report. So the report that went forward to eventually decriminalising homosexual acts, given that the whole point of the Prejudice and Pride programme was to mark that 50th anniversary so that he would have read that he had it in his possession in 1967 and then died two years later.
0: So that project actually resulted in quite a lot of negative press coverage as well what do you think the trigger for that was?
2: There were lots of people in the house and certainly the family weren't happy about this story being told there was also a Ferrari at the time I don't know if you remember about rainbow lanyards and the volunteers and staff of the house I mean, you can never quite get to the bottom of it, but the story that was told that they were being forced to wear rainbow lanyards against their will. Some people declined to wear it. And then there was a front page of the Daily Mail, like mutiny at Vellabrig Hall. And whilst it wasn't, there was lots of scepticism and backlash against the the film, it was also part of the bigger story that had been whipped up. It It was quite hard to deal with and it was actually Sean's birthday weekend we were away it ruined my birthday, <laughs> <very best. laughs> <laughs> and it was like picked up the papers and the front page was like home, oh shit and then she turned on the radio and it was on radio 2 talking about it and at the time I think I felt it was quite personal even though it wasn't about our film necessarily it was all, all about it all of the different aspects but in hindsight and we yeah, are very proud and I'm sure and the whole National Trust team behind it are very proud of that Work and I think attitudes have changed, and certainly the, the trust has changed. And we're still in touch with the volunteers at, at Felbrig Hall, and they say that the atmosphere of the house has changed, and new audiences have come there as a result of it. So that's really satisfying.
1: And so the other project you were involved in with the National Trust was uh, to do with sort of nooses. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rope. ropes, lots of ropes. That was in Dorset in a house called Kingston Lacey which was the story of William John Banks. William John Banks was very wealthy, had this amazing house in Dorset. He was an MP for a time. He invested in art and sculpture and he was also gay and he was caught twice with a guardsman in Green Park. The first time in the 1830s, it was hushed up by the establishment and, you know, uh, boys with boys, blah, blah, blah. The second time, people turned their backs on him and cut him adrift, and homosexuality was still punishable by the death penalty. So he decided that he had no choice but to flee the country, so essentially put himself into exile. But... From France and later Venice, he continued to design and build this house, Kingston Lacey. So the fabric of the house now, when you go and see it and walk around it, stems from William John Banks's imagination. It's the designs that he came up with from exile. We don't know whether he ever came back to visit the house. So it's very moving. But again, that story had never been properly told. The liaisons with the, with the soldiers in Green Park were called a moment of madness, as if he'd been carousing around with women every other day and then there's this sort of one gin too many and whoops a daisy. So again it was about telling that story honestly and openly but it was to do it in a way that had a contemporary relevance. So it wasn't just the historical, it was trying to bring up to date and talk about those people today that face discrimination in the UK and overseas and people that have to go into exile for various reasons. Either that's exile from their family because they're kicked out or whether it's because in some parts of the world they still face the death penalty for homosexuality so fleeing countries but the the nooses as you said that was um we came up with this idea that we wanted the visitor to have we didn't want them to have a traditional national trust experience walking around this house we wanted to have this sort of moment of confrontation really to suddenly hit home what this was all about so we did our research and found that in william john banks's life 51 men had been executed because of Homosexual acts. So we created a wooden frame and hung fifty-one ropes, each one representing one of the men that had been killed, and they were aged from seventeen to seventy-one. And then they weren't. Instead of nooses, they were knotted, and the knot was meant to symbolise kind of res- remembrance of, of these men. They were knotted at different heights. So the higher the knot, the younger the person, and the the lower the knot, the older. We also worked with the volunteers to record the volunteers speaking the names of all of the men that that were hanged so as you entered this very sort of visceral space there was a soundscape of these names just to kind of yeah heighten the atmosphere even more and then a list of their names and we did the research to find out their jobs and when they died and where they died and people did find it very shocking and very moving i think Mm I think the Daily Mail wasn't that keen on that one (laughs) either. They weren't that keen on (laughs) that that one, no. (laughs) They weren't that keen, but then others were, so that was good. And I think they had 19,000 people came to visit it over the course that it was on. So including when I was there, actually, I think it was the opening week. These two guys, older guys, Derek and Gordon, a married couple. They had been coming to Kingston Lacey just because they were National Trust members, didn't know anything about Exile, the project as we called it. And they'd been approaching and they'd seen the rainbow flag was flying and they were thought, oh, that's unusual. (laughs) And they came into the property and they went through. So they saw the uh, In Memoriam, which is the first space. They saw the second installation, which was more about people, contemporary relevance, fleeing their homes. And then the timeline at the end, which is about how LGBTQ lives have been affected by the law. And they were shocked and very moved and richard sandell who worked with asked them like have you ever seen anything like this in a gallery or a museum space before and they said no we've never we've never felt our story has been told or represented before so that was i mean i was i was sobbing i had to leave the room at that stage (laughs) um yeah but again it was really powerful. powerful and satisfying it was really amazing yeah i mean
3: could be biased, but I'm quite harsh. It was, <laughs> it was really amazing. And like the first room you went into, then some of the ropes were hung together for people that were caught together. So couples that had been caught together and then hung together were then hung, their ropes were hung together. So like things like that were really sad. And then the, the room that showed the videoscape um, of modern people who were living through that. It just makes you realise how lucky we are to live, mm-hmm. like, in the UK. I don't know, it was, like... For us, I think it was really...
2: Yeah. Like, yeah. Doing the research, it was kind of sad. But at some points, you would be mildly hysterical, find it really hysterical, that in sometimes in the historical record, the only time you find gay stories is when people have been mutilated and murdered and laws passed against them and it's like oh yeah here's another one it's like that sort of, you have to look at police records rather than other types of records where other stories are, uh, are told so yeah it's yeah it's a dark yeah. um, dark comedy yeah well i'm reading a book and laura's been reading
1: it called queer london and it is a history of London queerness since the year dot and so far The entire history is just about (laughs) people being murdered or shunned or (laughs) shamed in so many different ways. You think, my goodness, it's a common theme. Mm.
0: You've also been involved in a LGBTQ tour at the V&A. Yes. Um, And Steve and I took part in that last Sunday, where we had a really interesting tour of lots of stuff in the V&A that we wouldn't have otherwise known or noticed and, and links to various people in the LGBTQ community.
2: Yeah so I've been doing that just this this year it's an amazing program that's overseen by Dan Bowen, Eva Tyler there it started in 2015 it's one of the, I think the first national museum to do a program of this kind and it's been great learning from them working with them there are already lots of objects that they've research on to tell these queer stories but they also encourage you to do your own research and
0: so i suppose just to give people an idea so over the course of of, uh so it's an hour's tour and during that we go through 10 items all of which have got a different lgbt link to them tell tell us about some some of the items that you've been talking Um, about
2: the the last one that i talk about on the tour is a small stone statue of Shiva, the Hindu god, in the incarnation of Adhana Rishvara. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) And it is the incarnation of Shiva known as Adhana Rishvara is made up of both male and female gender identities. So the left-hand side is a man with a sort of pecs and an erection. And then on the right-hand side is Parvati, his Shiva's consort, and her, her boob is exposed. She's got a sassy ponytail. I'm probably being quite sacrilegious here, but it's a very powerful object because it tells the story from AD 150 in India of a sort of identity beyond gender. And it, because of that object you can then start talking about how in indian folklore and in hindu religious texts there are these stories of homosexual encounters asexual gender identities and this non-binary deity and it just shows that these conversations about gender identity and sexuality have been had since the dawn of time since Mm -hmm. humanity could think and and talk about them and, and create and i think what's important about that object is that you can then use it to talk about the decriminalisation of homosexuality in India, which is only last year, and that was overturning of colonial-era law, restoring the rights for people to be gay. So I think it's very powerful. Another object, which actually, unfortunately, isn't on display at the moment, but is hopefully, well, one day come back on display, is a Tom of Finland stamp. So Tom of Finland, when it was an anniversary of his birthday, I should note this, but I don't know, anyway the Finnish post office produced stamps with some of his wonderful artwork. Um, so there's a set of these stamps, so which are really cool. But then what people did was use those stamps to send posts to people in Russia as a protest against the Russian attitudes and laws against homosexuality. So not only is it quite a cool object in and of itself, it's how people are then covertly using it to sort of basically get these home erotic artworks into circulation in, in Russia.
0: You've got lots of different projects or different work projects. How do you find balancing your jobs as a freelancer or finding those different jobs as a freelancer even?
2: In some ways it's... Great because there I've got the flexibility and the freedom. This is the sort of ideal like, to manage my own time. I can go for a swim here and <laughs> work in a cafe and say yes to lots of things I'm interested in, but then you're not also not in charge because other people need have their deadlines that you have to accommodate. and it always happens that all the deadlines come at once when it can be very stressful. I, I generally really like it because it, it lets me do lots of different things. But then yeah, it yeah has its moments of of difficulty and stress. And as for finding jobs, I think I've just been really lucky, and I've got some amazing friends and colleagues and contacts. And because of the type of work it is, it's very multidisciplinary. So you always might require a writer and a lighting designer and a um, creative producer and a graphic designer. So there's always sort of little bits that you can contribute to different projects. What are your ambitions or aspirations for narrative environment work? I think that it, it's still... I mean, it's narrative environments where like, exhibitions, museum installations has been happening for forever. But I think, like I said before, it's only now that we're sort of understanding the power of those spaces. And I think as people, as the world becomes more and more digital... People are seeking out more sort of physical, real-world-type experiences, so things like secret cinema or um, punch drunk, but to use those not only to entertain but to, to communicate important stories. Okay. Yeah,
0: I suppose before, it was quite a, something that struck me listening to you both is that both of you are telling stories through your environment. So, Sean, you're creating gardens and tell, trying to tell a story so here trying to create that sort of Alice in Wonderland experience and Tommy you're doing the same kind of thing through the built environment it's interesting as a couple you've both
3: got that theme going on I use Tom quite a lot to, if he likes like aesthetics and also just ideas um, so it is I suppose we're both probably sensitive to our environment so that makes a difference so like actually I hate noise well, actually the wrong type of noise. I kind of like <laughs> music and different things. Uh, but also just the kind of the feeling that you can get for me from gardens and well, actually landscapes, it's not just gardens. The more you garden, the more you just actually like, I should just go to like a beautiful part of the world and be in it. But as the second best, you can make a really nice garden.
2: Yeah, and I definitely like, as you know, I will always get Sean's opinion on, on things and I think you've got a good bullshitometer, and you can like, say... <laughs> I <laughs> tell one I oh, just, well, no, no, yeah. but that's a compliment, like, uh, when I've just, I've delved too deep into the, the nonsense around it, and helps to get to the, the nub of the story of what needs to be communicated, which is, yeah, incredibly helpful.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. If people are interested
2: in the v LGBTQ tour, what do they need to they do? They need to turn up at the v and Museum in London, South Kensington, at four o'clock on the last Saturday of every month, and there will be a group of people gathering in the corner by the Cromwell Road entrance, and you'll have uh, so hopefully spend a lovely and informative and entertaining hour at the gallery.
1: Fantastic! And is the Inner Temple Garden open to the public?
3: Yeah, it is. So it is a private garden, but um, we do open between half twelve and three o'clock, Mondays to Fridays. And then um, we do various open days on weekends throughout the year. So look on the website. Or we've got a really good Instagram account if we say so ourselves.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast is Gay. Thank it's you. Been thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Hear your stories and um, good luck for all your future projects. Thanks. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks, Tom and Sean, for that fantastic interview. It was really interesting to get an insight into your lives.
0: And watch out for our next episode. We promise that, well, we're not going to promise because, but we will do our very utmost to make sure that it comes out sooner than this one does.
1: As ever, you can catch us on Facebook or Twitter at Podcast is Gay. So, from Steve, from Laurie, wishing you an
0: amazing Christmas and a brilliant new year.
1: Bye!